We are looking at Judges chapter 4, verse 1 to 16. This is a good time, but you guys will go through Judges to keep your Bibles open. Because we're going to walk through Judges verse by verse. Uh, it's very important when we are preaching and you are hearing uh, that you keep your Bibles open to make sure that what we're teaching is from the Word of God and not the Word of man. So Judges chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 16. Now, a couple of years ago, I read a story about a woman in California called AJ. AJ suffers from a rare medical condition whereby she remembers everything. (laughs) Now, I know for some of you, remembering everything is what you really want, and to think of it as a medical condition uh, is not something that perhaps surprises you. But it is a medical condition she has. She remembers everything. In fact, since she was 11 years old, she remembers practically every day in astonishing details. She remembers, I read this story in 2012, so at that time she was 41. She remembers what exactly she had for breakfast 30 years ago. And she remembers each episode of TV uh, soap that she watches, that she watched in the 80s, she remembers every single detail. Uh, so the, the experts have described that condition like, almost like a memory is like a non-stop movie. It never stops, it just keeps running. And we may think that's a wonderful thing, but actually, for AJ, her life is heartbreaking. And she struggles to make decisions, uh, because her memory is just there all the time, and she, she can't also form meaningful relationships. Can you imagine being a friend of AJ? I mean, when she, you know, forget, sees you and you do something wrong, it still sticks in her mind. Uh, so she struggles with relationships and uh, she can't really get to know people very well. Uh, AJ's life reminds us that forgetting actually is often good for us. Uh, God has created us with the capacity to forget so that we can forge meaningful relationships and live a functional life. We need to remember, but also forgetting is also good. The problem is that, as human beings, uh, we tend to remember what we should forget. And we tend to forget what we should remember. We need to keep this truth in mind because what God wants us to do is not to forget Him. And so today we are resuming our exploration As I said, through the book of Judges, which tells a story of how the people of God settled in the promised land. The time we are at is just after the time of Joshua. You remember Moses had led the people out of Egypt, but God did not allow him to enter the promised land. That honor went to Joshua, and Joshua led the people into the promised land. But now Joshua has died. His generation is no longer there. And as soon as the people settle into the land, what do they do? They forget God. And they start worshipping idols of the land. And as soon as these people in the land start oppressing them, they cry out to God for help. And what does God do? God raises up judges to serve them. Hence the title of the book, Judges. And now we've already, those of us that have been with us uh, for some time, you remember we looked at chapter 1 to chapter 3, which covered the first first three judges 
of Israel. I won't do a quiz, perhaps I should, but the first judge is Othaniel, who God raised up to rescue the people from Cushan, Ristahim. The second judge was Eud, who God raised up uh, to save them from what? The Moabite threat and Eglon. And the third judge we read, just one verse of chapter 3, verse 31, is Shamga, who saved the people from the Philistines. The Philistines will be back and will meet Samson as he takes them on. Well, this morning we're resuming our journey in Judges chapter 4, verse 1 to 16. As God raises another judge to lead these people after they have long forgotten him. And the question we are asking this morning is, how should we respond to this amazing God, who though we forget him, he never forgets us? How should we respond to him, to this God who's always thinking of us, even though we never sometimes give thought to him, even for us who are in Jesus Christ? Well, come with me on an adventure 3,300 years ago and see how Judges chapter 4 helps us answer that question. The first truth we learn in Judges chapter 4 is that everyone forgets God. Everyone is prone to forgetting God. The people of God, Israel, are enjoying a golden age of peace under the second judge of Israel, Ayut. It has lasted for eight decades. Amazing time of prosperity. Peace from inside and peace against all their enemies outside. Then Ayut dies as all men do. Losing this great leader means there is no one left to tell them what to do. And so Israel does what everyone does when no one is looking. Look at verse 1. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Israel is worshipping idols again. They never stop doing it. When Joshua dies, they forget God. God sends Othaniel. When Othaniel dies, they forget God. God sends Ehud. When Ehud now is dead, they forget God again. You see, the people of Israel are okay when the leader is alive. They are doing all right. But as soon as the leader dies, it is free for all. And we are all just like that, aren't we? We are okay in church on Sunday morning when all the believers are watching after us. But how do we behave the next day when no one is watching? And we see this in our children at home. Parents know this very well. The children can behave themselves when they are home. The mom, the dad give them all the rules that they need. But as soon as they get to university with freedom, unbounded freedom with no one watching, Often what we hear is what? They lose it quickly. It does not matter how many good things God does for Israel here or how many rules they have. They can't help themselves to run after their own vomit. They are running back to their sins that God had delivered them from. Why are people like this? 
No, no, that's the wrong question. Why are we like that? Because human beings, of course, lack a sufficient firewall against the burning desires of sin inside of us. There is a deep longing within the human heart to always sin against God, no matter how much goodness God has shown you in your life. And we know this very well, that God has showed us with such amazing blessings. His hand watches over us. But that doesn't keep us from sinning. And this is why, by ourselves, we, we cannot have life with God. You see, everyone is prone to forget God, including God's people. And these are God's people. Why? Because rule-keeping is impossible. It is impossible to be right with God by keeping the rules. And the Israelites are finding that out. And this is the big problem, of course. Why? Because a life that forgets God is not a fulfilling life. We shall see that in a moment. Forgetting God enslaves us all. It enslaves us. And it carries deadly penalties. And that is our next observation. Truth number one, everyone forgets God. We see that in verse one. Well, the second truth is that and forgetting God enslaves us all. You see, forgetting God is like sowing off a branch that supports us. It cuts off our only help and we are left scrambling for life. And this is what happens to Israel here. The people have forgotten God. What does God do? God says, fine, if you don't want to live for me, if you don't want to worship me, fine, that's fine. You know, I'm a gentleman, so to speak. I'll let you do as you please. And so God gives them up to the consequences of their own desires. Look at this two there in front of you. And the Lord sought them into the hand of Jabin. Just the name itself is worrying. Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Arasheth, Hagoim. It says here that God has sought them, but really, they have sought themselves into the hands of Jabin. Because it is their forgetting God that has now led them into the slavery and the Jabin. The Jabin clan, if you remember Joshua, the Jabin clan and the city of Ezo had been completely wiped out by Joshua. As the people of God conquered the promised land, but after Moses had died, but now that Israel has settled into the land, they have forgotten God, and the ghost of the past has come to haunt them with the vengeance. We might want to make a quick observation that it's often like that I see in people's lives. They have conquered a certain sin. And all of a sudden, out of whatever, they go back to that sin. What happens is that eventually that sin even has greater power on them than they had in the past. The ghost usually comes back with a vengeance. Because our enemy is relentless. He always adapts and he gets better at chaining us to sin. And that's what's happened to these people. They are facing a worse form of oppression than they had faced under Eglon. Israel now is not facing one enemy. It's facing the twin evils of King Jabin and his commander Sisera. They are almost like living in a national prison run by these two figures. 
and it is very painful for them. Look at verse 3. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he that is Sisera had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years, two decades. The situation here is uh, similar to that of, it's simply this, one ethnic group, the Canaanites, are oppressing another ethnic groups. And we see this around the world often, isn't it? You, you have the Hussis and the Tusis in Rwanda, the similar situation. We had South Africa and the apartheid was similar, where one group of people was oppressing another and they treated the Zulus there in South Africa. Uh, the whites had treated the Zulus there in South Africa almost like, what? Almost like a national prison. They couldn't come out of these Bantustines that they had set up. Certain areas they couldn't go. And in Iraq, under Saddam, we see the same thing. What did Saddam do? He was a Sunni, and he oppressed the Shiites. One small tribe oppressed the rest, and the Shiites were restricted. And that's what Israel is experiencing here. They are being forced to live with no freedom of the press, no weapons have been completely disarmed. They can do nothing without Sisera's permission. You know, every time Israeli mothers hear the wheels of those chariots of Sisera, what do they do? They are forced to hide their young daughters. This is an evil, oppressive regime. And you know what's tragic about it? This has all come upon them because they have forgotten God. This is their own doing. They have chosen to live in sin, so they have handcuffed themselves to this slavery under Jerbin and Sisera. And friends, can I warn you this morning that this is what sin does to us. All sin enslaves and humiliates us in the end. And we know this in our own lives, don't we? Our greed often leads us into dead problems. Our anger with other people often leads to divorce and loneliness. Our addictions destroys our marriages and any relationships, and it brings us emptiness. We know this from our own experience. We know that sin deceives us, that we can forget God and it will end well in the end. But friends, life with God in the end never provides ultimate fulfillment. It is a lie from the devil that sin and live free. It just never happens. And Israel is finding that out. And the real tragedy is that in the end, those who continuously live in sin show that they are not born of God. That they have no life of God in them. And when that is, not the, and when that is the case, when you have no life of God in you, the slavery you have is not just in this life. You are handcuffing yourself to an everlasting slavery in hell run by the devil and his angels. Friends, forgetting God always enslaves us. But here is the good news of this passage. And it is good news. Sin is not the last word. Sin is not the last word. And this is our third observation from Judges. Everyone forgets God. That was our point one. Point two, forgetting God enslaves us. But here is the good news. God never forgets his people. God never forgets his people. We've seen in verse 3 that the people of Israel 
are crying out desperate to God to set them free. They are crying for under this oppression. And God, amazingly, despite all they've done to him, hears their cries. And he answers that. Look at verse 4. This is God's answer. He sends a prophetess. Now Deborah, a prophetess. The name Deborah, by the way, means bee. She's like a bee. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. God has raised up Deborah as a judge. Instead of removing the problem immediately, it's very interesting. God doesn't just rain down fire from heaven on Sisera. He can do that. But what God does instead is he answers by sending them a female prophet called Deborah. And a prophet speaks God's word to people, so Deborah is being raised up to speak the word of God to them. Well, we should note in passing here that whatever situation you are facing right now, the Bible in your hand is the answer to your problems. God's answer always to you is your, the Bible in your hands. It is the answer. It's not in experts. It's not in the pastor. It's not in anything else. You have God's word. It is fully sufficient to deal with whatever problem you are facing. Have you ever wondered what an amazing gift the Bible is? You know, these people in Israel are having to travel miles to come to Deborah. But you don't have to do that. You have the Bible in your hands. And it's through the Bible God speaks to you. And you can speak back to him in prayer. You have his word right there. What an amazing gift God has given you. Far greater gift than the children of Israel had. Do you thank God often for reading, for giving you this Bible? Have you ever thanked God just for giving you the Bible? Are you showing God thanks for giving you the Bible by actually reading it? If somebody gives you a gift, you don't stash it, do you? If you are really grateful for that gift, what do you do with it? You read it, right? Are you thanking God by actually reading the Bible? But notice here that Deborah... It's not just a prophetess. Look at verse 5. She used to sit. It says in verse 4, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Labadoth, was judging Israel at that time. What is she doing? It says in verse 5, She used to sit under the palm of Deborah. She has a tree named after her, and she used to sit between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Deborah is not just a prophetess. She's not just a mother. She's not just a wife. She is also a judge or a leader. And all the people are coming to her for help and direction. Some people think they're coming to settle disputes. There's nothing in the text that necessarily implies that. I think what's happening is that they're coming to her and they're crying out to Deborah for help. And as a prophetess, she's able to approach God. And what happens is that God answers that prayer. Look at verse 6 to 7. Answers Deborah's plea, probably on behalf of the people. And look what God does. She, that is Deborah, sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoham, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, 
taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the Zebulun. This is a clear strategy. And then God adds, and I will draw Sisera out. God controls every detail. So he's going to draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kaishon with his chariots and his troops. And I'll give him into your hand. By the way, that is a rhetorical question. We could even infer from that that perhaps God has already told Barak to do this and the man hasn't moved and we see some signs of that. And so Deborah speaks equivocally, do it now. And we're expecting Barak to jump and thank God for this honor of defeating the tyrant of the land. But Barak has a different view. Look at verse 8. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. We have to be fair to Barak here. Barak is probably thinking, look, fine, 10,000 people, I'm happy to recruit that, okay, fine. But how am I going to convince these 10,000 to come with me? You are asking me to raise up a rebel movement in the land. You can understand that why he's equivocating here. We should know that Barak has faith, yes, but it is weak faith. Uh, Barak obviously trusts Deborah enough to go with her, but he does not trust God enough to go without Deborah. That's very important. His faith needs Deborah around. We might say that Deborah is Barak's security blanket. You serve God as long as Deborah is there. I wonder, friends, as you sit here this morning, who or what is the Deborah in your life? Who is that person you cannot serve God without? What is that thing that you cannot serve God without? For some people, Deborah is a church. It is a church that ticks all the little boxes that they have. They have a form. I only go to church if it fits X, 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 X. And then I'm happy to settle down the church and serve God. That is the Deborah in their life. For some people, I mean young people, sorry for me saying this, young people often, Deborah is a potential husband. Why? Because some people, are, young people often are only willing to settle in churches if they can meet a man there. And I hear often and I speak to the other young people in this situation. Deborah is a potential spouse for many. They are not willing to serve, commit to God unless it fulfills these things are available. And of course, for some people, Deborah is a job. They are happy to serve God, come to church, as long as God is giving them a job, prospering them in that. If the job is not there, they forget God. Some, Deborah might be, their health, they are only willing to go if they are perfectly 100%. They won't struggle to, to come to church even if they 50% or 60%. I'm not saying you should come in a casket, I'm simply saying they are not willing to even make personal sacrifices in that way. But friends, look at this carefully. God will not be bargained with. 
Look at verse 9. Look what Deborah says. And she said to him, Fine, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead you to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. She doesn't tell us who this woman will be. We don't know. Is it Deborah? Is it someone else? We have no idea as we read this. And we'll have to come in the evening to find out who this woman is as we continue the story. For now, notice that what's happening is Deborah is hiding behind, well, Barak is hiding behind Deborah. And he goes along with Deborah. Notice what interesting he does. He says in verse 9 to 10, Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Verse 10, And Barak called out Zebulun. By the way, before we read verse 10, just notice there, I mean, this picture of Deborah getting up from a prophetic chair and Barak tagging along. It's a warning to us men. Because many of us men, we're not willing to do anything. We constantly hide behind our wives. Here is a picture of this commander of Israel whose only way of serving God is hiding behind this, this woman. And as men, we are to lead our homes in a biblical way. We are to show leadership in the home. We are not to hide and make excuses that I can't serve the Lord because of my wife this or my wife that. We must pray and come before the Lord and show you that. Barak is a bad example because he's only going to do it hiding behind a woman. A woman who's not meant to be in combat at all, but she's forced to be in combat. And we might even say it's a picture of a church sometimes. Many women have sustained the church because men are not prepared to lead. And so women have to do it. I know of churches where men have completely disappeared from serving and entire churches are being sustained by men. We can complain about women pastors and things like that and the grounds for that, but where are the men? And that's the challenge here that Deborah poses us. She's forced to stand up and lead and so Barak goes, hiding behind Deborah. Look at verse 10. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. With Deborah's help, he is able to summon these 10,000 men. They went up at his heels. They are now following him. Barak is finally leading. And Deborah went up with him now. The order now is restored. He's been strengthened by Deborah. And now he's able to take his place as a commander of Israel. Notice Deborah now is behind. And of course, we are told, then the battle lines are drawn because the news gets to Sisera. Look at verse 11. Now Eber the Canaanite, we'll say more about him in the evening, had separated from the Canaanites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched eastern as far away as the hawk in Zionaim, which is near Kadesh, we are told. Verse 12 says, And when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera caught out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Eresheth, Egohim, to the river Kishon. 
The battle lines have been drawn. Barak is on Mount Tabor. It is 1,800 feet above sea level. It's in the valley of Jezreel with the commanding view. And down below we have Sisera who has summoned all his magnificent troops. The, the chariots of iron, they are like the F-16s of the time. They are the smart bomb. They are the most modern weaponry you can think of. And he has commanded 900 of these. And he has summoned all his troops. And he has just crossed the river Kaishon, which drained the Jezreel Valley. So basically, he's standing here, the mountain is in front of him, and the river Kaishon is behind him. There is no escape for Barak. And frankly, if it goes wrong for our friend, Mr. Cicero, there's also no escape for him either. And then the battle begins. Look at verse 14. And Deborah said to Barak, Up! She's like, get up! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. And look, this is woman speaks with authority. Does not the Lord go out before you? It's like, is it not done already? And of course, Barak now steps out in faith. No questions, we are told. And so Barak went down in verse 14 from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. That's a reminder. He's now in charge. He's trusting God now. And as soon as he gets down in the valley, him and Sisera gets a surprise because God now has completely taken over. Look at verse 15. And the Lord routed. That word routed literally means God caused confusion. He routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. We stop there. We notice here that God takes the, everything, he takes the whole battle scene, he takes charge of everything, and he routes Sisera's army like he routed Pharaoh's army when the Israelites were crossing the Red Sea. In fact, when we come to Judges chapter 5, verse 19 to 22, he tells us that what has happened here is that God has caused the river Kishon to flood. And it has flooded the entire battlefield. You can find that in verse 19 of chapter 5 to verse 22. And the troops are panicking and they get stuck and they are now slaughtered by Barak. Look at verse 15 again. And the Lord routed Sisera and his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. That means they have been brutally killed. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on his foot. He's running away now. He's a coward from battle. He's not willing to die with these troops. He runs away. And what does Barak do? Barak pursues the chariots and the army to Arashat Ogohim. That means he's pursued them to their hometown. He's arrived and he's killing everyone along the way who belonged to Sisera, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man left. The troops have been completely defeated. The word of the Lord through Deborah has come true. God's people are now freed from oppression. And we see in the evening that it is only now a matter of time before Israel gets to Jabin. And he too is completely destroyed. But you have to come in the evening to pick that up. Most importantly though here, we see that God never forgets his people. 
And most importantly, the victory here shows us that in order for us to live with God, we need God to remember us and God himself to defeat our enemies. And friends, that's exactly what God has done for us in Jesus. And the victory by the caution is not there just as a piece of historic detail. It is pointing us forward to Jesus who comes. Jesus comes like our barrack. He charges into the battle against sin, death, and hell. And he defeats it on the cross. We can say that Barak here is the foreshadow of Jesus who comes and triumphs, not with the sword, but with the power of the cross. Jesus has defeated our enemies. And the good news of the Bible is that if you belong to Jesus, you share in this victory. So God never forgets you now, because you are his child in Jesus. It doesn't matter what you're facing this morning. It doesn't matter what you're struggling with. It may have even been brought about by your own sin as the people of Israel had done. The amazing thing here is that if you are in Jesus, God is with you. You can go to him. You can confess your sin because God has not forgotten you. Your future is secure in God. So the question for us here this morning is, how should we respond to this? Well, and that's quickly is our final observation. How do we respond to this God? Truth number one, we said what? Everyone forgets God. Truth number two, forgetting God enslaves us. But the good news is that, that was truth number three, God never forgets his people. So how then should we respond to this God? This is our original question. How should we respond to this God who never forgets us? Well, I want to suggest to you that we must do what Deborah does. We must follow Deborah's example. We must trust God completely. And that's our final point. We must trust God completely. You see, throughout this historic event, Deborah, you would agree with me, stands out above all others. And she stands out as an example of how we are to trust God today. When all Israel has forgotten God, what does Deborah do? Deborah saves God as a prophet. She saves God at home as a wife and as a mother. She saves the nation. She saves God in the nation as a judge. To trust God like Deborah means handing over the entire life, your entire life to God. It is saying to God, anywhere, anytime, my answer is yes. Deborah has handed over our life to God. And for you to trust God like Deborah, you must do that. Anywhere, anytime, my answer is yes. And when all Israel is cowering in fear at the sound of Sisera's chariot, friends, have you considered how risky it must have been for Deborah sitting at that palm tree? I mean, she's in such a central location. All these people are coming to her at the time during a military dictatorship. Try doing that in Kim Jong-un's North Korea. It's dangerous. And Deborah is not covered by that. She's trusting God. And notice that when Barak read the challenges, he throws down that gauntlet, I'll go only if you come. 
Deborah is not worrying that ah, going along with Barak means a death, perhaps. If battle goes wrong, who knows? I mean, what if Sisera wins? But no, she trusts in God because she knows there's not really any risk here. But she's willing to put her faith on the line. Even if it costs her. Even if it means losing her life. And that's how it should be. Friends, trust in God. Like Deborah is not just saying a sinner's prayer. Lord Jesus, please come into my life. No. It's total surrender to the Lord. Even at the risk of losing your life. Or your status in life. And when verse 5 says Deborah is between Ram and Bethel. Did you notice that? What is that telling us? It's telling us that she is not where the covenant is. Where should Deborah be? As a prophetess. She should be in Shiloh. Where the Ark of the Covenant is. Where all the priests are. They are based in Shiloh. But she's not there. She is between Ram and Bethel. He's telling us that Deborah is going alone. He's telling us that Deborah has chosen not to associate herself with these idolatrous priests. Who do their work there. She's trusting God alone. Friends, to trust God like Deborah means being prepared like Jesse Rao to stand alone with God. Even when no one is standing with you. Even when everyone is pressuring you to put God second. You say, no, I am standing and trusting God. And there is more for us to say about Deborah when we get to chapter 5. We could be, that's another sermon really. But we'll look at that when we get to chapter 5. And see how Deborah continued to trust God. The point I just want to leave with you this morning is this. And it's very important. If you're going to remember anything, you need to remember this. Deborah trusted God before experiencing an amazing victory by the river Kaishan. That's important. But even more important is that she trusted God before the coming of our Messiah, Jesus. You see, Deborah and other prophets lived and longed for the coming of Jesus. That's why she's doing this. She's keeping the hope of the Messiah coming alive. Friends, how much more us who are now living in Jesus? We have known and experienced the victory of Jesus on the cross over sin and death. How much more us who have the Spirit of God living in us? We have known that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. How much more should we trust God like Deborah? Friends, we have every reason to trust God more than Deborah. But many of us don't even have half the trust that Deborah has. Why is that? Because we forget how wonderful our God is. We forget what we have learned this morning that God is a gracious God. He's sovereign in power. And he never forgets his people. We forget his goodness. We are just like Israel. So I want to encourage you to come to him this morning. Come to God. Put your trust in him. Bring, if you are a follower of Jesus, bring every situation you have. Lay it at his feet. Come to this God who never forgets you. And put your confidence in him. And tell him anywhere, anytime.
like Deborah says, I will save you in any situation. And if you don't know Christ, then let this passage challenge you. That all the world reveres to own. It does not bring ultimate freedom. Only trusting and walking with Christ does. Amen. Amen.